Part Two of Rastanac the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Rastanac the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapter Seven. Dawn broke through night's guard and spilled a crimson swath on the hills to the east, and the six flying stars faded from sight like a necklace of glowing jewels dipped into an ink bottle. Rastanac halted the weary Renault on the top of a hill, looked down over the landscape spread out for miles below him. Mapfarity's castle, a tall rose-colored tower of flying buttresses, flashed in the rising sun. It stood on another hill by the seashore. The country around was a madman's dream of color. Yet to Rastanac every hue sickened the eye. That bright green, for instance, was poisonous. That flaming scarlet was bloody. That pale yellow, roomy. That velvet black, funeral. That pure white, maggoty. Rastanac! It was Mapfarity's bass strumming irritation deep in his chest. What? What do we do now? Jean-Jacques was silent. Archambaud spoke plaintively. I'm not used to going without my skin. There are things I miss. For one thing, I don't know what you're thinking, Jean-Jacques. I don't know whether you're angry at me or love me or are indifferent to me. I don't know where other people are. I don't feel the joy of the little animals playing, the freedom of the flight of birds, the ghostly plucking of the growing grass, the sweet stab of the mating lust of the wild-horned apigator, the humming of bees working to build a hive, and the sleepy, stupid arrogance of the giant cabbage-eating Dunez. I can feel nothing without the skin I have worn so long. I feel alone." Rastanac replied, "'You are not alone. I am with you." Lucienne spoke in a low voice, her large brown eyes upon his. I too feel alone. My skin is gone. The skin by which I knew how to act according to the wisdom of my father, the Amphib King. Now that it is gone and I cannot hear his voice through the vibrating tympanium, I do not know what to do. At present, replied Rastanac, you will do as I tell you. Mapfarity repeated. What now? Rastanac became brisk. He said, We go to your castle, giant. We use your smithy to put sharp points on our swords, points to slide through a man's body from front to back. Don't pale. That is what we must do. And then we pick up your goose that lays the golden eggs, for we must have money if we are to act efficiently. After that we buy, or steal, a boat, and we go to wherever the Earthman is held captive, and we rescue him. And then, said Lucienne, her eyes shining with emotion, what you do then will be up to you. But I am going to leave this planet and voyage with the Earthman to other worlds. Silence. Then Mapfarity said, Why leave here? Because there is no hope for this land. Nobody will give up his skin. Le Beaupais is doomed to a lotus life, and that is not for me. Archambaud jerked a thumb at the Amphib girl. What about her people? They may win, the water people. What's the difference? It will be just the exchange of one skin for another. 
Before I heard of the landing of the Earthman, I was going to fight no matter what the cost to me or inevitable defeat. But not now. Matt Faraday's rumble was angry. Ah, uh, Jean-Jacques, this is not my comrade talking. Are you sure you haven't swallowed your skin? You talk as if you were inside out. What is the matter with your brain? Can't you see that it will indeed make a difference if the amphibs get the upper hand? Can't you see who is making the amphibs behave the way they have been? Rastanac urged the Renault toward the rose-colored lacy castle high upon the hill. The vehicle trotted tiredly along the rough and narrow forest path. What do you mean? he said. I mean the amphibs got along fine with the Sassassaror until a new element entered their lives, the Earthmen. Then the antagonizing began. What is this new element? It's the changelings, the mixture of Earthmen and amphibs, or Sassassaror and Terran. Add it up, turn it around, look at it from any angle. It is the changelings who are behind this restlessness, the human element. Another thing. The amphibs have always had skins different from ours. Our factories create our skins to set up an affinity and communication between their wearers and all of nature. They are designed to make it easier for every man to love his neighbor. Now, the strange thing about the amphibs' skin is that they, too, were once designed to do such things. But in the past thirty or forty years, new skins have been created for one primary purpose, to establish a communication between the Sea King and his subjects. Not only that, the skins can be operated at long distances so that the king may punish any disobedient subject, and they are set so that they establish affinity only among the waterfolk, not between them and all of nature. I had gathered some of that during my conversations with Lucienne, said Rastanac, but I did not know it had gone to such lengths. Yes, and you may safely bet that the changelings are behind it. Then it is the human element that is corrupting. What else? Rastanac said, Lucienne, what do you say to this? I think it is best that you leave this world or else turn changeling amphib. Why should I join you amphibs? A man like you could become a sea king. And drink blood? I would rather drink blood than mate with a man. Almost, that is. But I would make an exception with you, Jean-Jacques. If it had been a landwoman who made such a blunt proposal, he would have listened with equanimity. There was no modesty, false or otherwise, in the country of the skin-wearers. But to hear such a thing from a woman whose mouth had drunk the blood of a living man filled him with disgust. Yet he had to admit Lucienne was beautiful, if she had not been a blood-drinker. Though he lacked his receptive skin, Matt Faraday seemed to sense Rastanac's emotions. He said, You must not blame her too much, Jean-Jacques. Sea changelings are conditioned from babyhood to love blood, and for a very definite purpose, too, unnatural though it is. When the time comes for hordes of changelings to sweep out of the sea and overwhelm the landfolk, they will have no compunctions about cutting the throats of their fellow creatures. Lucienne laughed. The rest of them shifted uneasily, but did not comment. Rastanac changed the subject. How did you find out about the Earthman, Mapfarity? he said. The Sassassaror smiled. Two long yellow canines shone wetly. The nose, which had nostrils set in the sides, gaped open, 
blue sparks shot out from it. At the same time the feathered tufts on the ends of the elephantine ears stiffened and crackled with red and blue sparks. I have been doing something besides breeding geese to lay golden eggs, he said. I have set traps for waterfolk, and I have caught two. These I caged in a dungeon in my castle, and I experimented with them. I removed their skins and put them on me, and I found out many interesting facts. He leered at Lucienne, who was no longer laughing, and he said, For instance, I discovered that the Sea King can locate, talk to, and punish any of his subjects anywhere in the sea or along the coast. He has booster skins planted all over his realm so that any message he sends will reach the receiver, no matter how far away he is. Moreover, he has conditioned each and every skin, so that by uttering a certain code word to which only one particular skin will respond, he may stimulate it to shock or even kill its carrier. Mapfarity continued. I analyzed those two skins in my lab, and then, using them as models, I made a number of duplicates in my flesh forge. They lacked only the nerves that would enable the Sea King to shock us. Rastanak smiled his appreciation of this coup. Mapfarity's ears crackled blue sparks of joy, his equivalent of blushing. Ah, then you have doubtless listened in on many broadcasts, and you know where the Earthman is located. Yes, said the giant. He is in the palace of the Amphib King, upon the island of Catapromenoin. That is only thirty miles out to the sea. Rastanak did not know what he would do, but he had two advantages in the Amphibs, Skins, and in Lucienne. And he burned to get off this doomed planet, this land of men too sunk in false happiness, sloth, and stupidity, to see that soon death would come from the water. He had two possible avenues of escape. One was to use the newly arrived Earthman's knowledge so that the fuels necessary to propel the ferry rockets could be manufactured. The rockets themselves still stood in a museum. Rastanak had not planned to use them because neither he nor anyone else on this planet knew how to make fuel for them. Such secrets had long ago been forgotten. But now that science was available through the newcomer from Earth, the rockets could be equipped and taken up to one of the six flying stars. The Earthman could study the rocket, determine what was needed in the way of supplies. Then it could be outfitted for the long voyage. An alternative was the Terran's vessel. Perhaps he might invite him to come along in it. The huge gateway to Mapfarity's castle interrupted his thoughts. Chapter 8 He halted the Renault, told Archambaud to find the giant's servant and have him feed their vehicle, rub its legs down with liniment, and examine the hooves for defective shoes. Archambaud was glad to look up Mapfabishine, the giant's servant, because he had not seen him for a long time. The little Sassassaror had been an active member of the Eggstealers' Guild until the night three years ago when he had tried to creep into Mapfarity's strong room. The crafty guildsmen had avoided the giant's traps and there found the two geese squatting upon their bed of minerals. These fabulous geese made no sound when he picked them up with lead-lined gloves and put them in his bag, also lined with lead leaf. They were not even aware of him. Laboratory-bred, retort-shaped, their protoplasm a blend of silicon carbon, unconscious even that they lived. 
They munched upon lead and other elements, ruminated, gestated, transmuted, and every month, regular as the clockwork march of stars or whirl of electrons, each laid an octagonal egg of pure gold. Mapfabashin had trodden softly from the strong room and thought himself safe. And then, amazingly, frighteningly, and totally unethically from his viewpoint, the geese had begun to honk loudly. He had run, but not fast enough. The giant had come stumbling from his bed in response to the wild clamor and had caught him. And according to the contract drawn up between the Guild of Egg-Stealers and the League of Giants, a guildsman seized within the precincts of a castle must serve the goose's owner for two years. Mapfabashin had been greedy. He had tried to take both geese. Therefore he must wait upon the giant for a double term. Afterwards he found out how he'd been trapped. The egg-layers themselves hadn't been honking. Mouthless, they were utterly incapable of that. Mapfarity had fastened a so-called goose-tracker to the strong-room's doorway. This device clicked loudly whenever a goose was nearby. It could smell out one even through a lead-leaf-blind bag. When Mapfabashin passed underneath it, its clicks woke up a small skin beside it. The skin, mostly lung-sack and voice-organs, honked its warning, and the dwarf Mapfabashin began his servitude to the giant Mapfarity. Rastanak knew the story. He also knew that Mapfarity had infected the fellow with the philosophy of violence, and that he was now a good member of his underground. He was eager to tell him his servitor days were over, that he could now take his place in their band as an equal, subject, of course, to Rastanak's order. Mapfabashin was stretched out upon the floor and snoring a sour breath. A gray-haired man was slumped on a nearby table, his head turned to one side, exhibited the same slack-jawed look that the Sassassaror had, and he flung the ill-smelling gauntlet of his breath at the visitors. He held an empty bottle in one loose hand. Two other bottles lay on the stone floor, one shattered. Beside the bottles lay the men's skins. Rastanak wondered why they had not crawled to the hall-tree and hung themselves up. What ails them? And what is that smell?" said Mapfarity. I don't know, replied Archambaud. But I know the visitor. He is Father Jules, priest of the Guild of Egg-Stealers. Rastanak raised his queer, bracket-shaped eyebrows, picked up a bottle in which there remained a slight residue, and drank. Mon Dieu! It is the sacrament wine! he cried. Mapfarity said, Why would they be drinking that? I don't know. Wake Mapfabashin up, but let the good father sleep. He seems tired after his spiritual labors and doubtless deserves a rest. Doused with a bucket of cold water, the little Sassassaror staggered to his feet. Seeing Archambaud, he embraced him. Ah, Archambaud, old baby abductor, my sweet goosebagger, my ears tingle to see you again. They did. Red and blue sparks flew off his ear feathers. What is the meaning of this? sternly interrupted Mapfarity. He pointed at the dirt swept into the corners. Mapfabashin drew himself up to his full dignity, which wasn't much. Good Father Jules was making his circuits, he said. You know, he travels around the country and hears confession and sings mass for us poor egg-stealers who have been unlucky enough to fall into the clutches of some rich and greedy and antisocial giant 
who is too stingy to hire servants, but captures them instead, and who won't allow us to leave the premises until our servitude is over. Cut it, thundered Mapfarity. I can't stand around all day listening to the likes of you. My feet hurt too much. Anyway, you know I've allowed you to go into town every weekend. Why don't you see a priest then? Mapfabachine said, You know very well the closest town is ten kilometers away, and it's full of pantheists. There's not a priest to be found there. Rastanak groaned inwardly. Always it was thus. You could never hurry these people or get them to regard anything seriously. Take the case they were wasting their breath on now. Everybody knew the church had been outlawed a long time ago because it opposed the use of the skins and certain other practices that went along with it. So no sooner had that been done than the Sassassarors, anxious to establish their check-and-balance system, had made arrangements through the Minister of Ill-Will to give the church unofficial legal recognizance. Then, though the aborigines had belonged to that pantheistical organization known as the Sons of Good and Old Mother Nature, they had all joined the Church of the Terrans. They operated under the theory that the best way to make an institution innocuous was for everybody to sign up for it. Never persecute. That makes it thrive. Much to the Church's chagrin, the theory worked. How can you fight an enemy who insists on joining you, and who will also agree to everything you teach him, and then still worship at the other service? Supposedly driven underground, the church counted almost every landsman among its supporters from the kings down. Every now and then a priest would forget to wear his skin out of doors and be arrested, then released later in an official jailbreak. Those who refused to cooperate were forcibly kidnapped, taken to another town, and there let loose. Nor did it do the priest any good to proclaim boldly who he was. Everybody pretended not to know he was a fugitive from justice. They insisted on calling him by his official pseudonym. However, few priests were such martyrs. Generations of skin-wearing had sapped the ecclesiastical vigor. The thing that puzzled Rastanak about Father Jules was the sacrament wine. Neither he nor anybody else in Le Bopfay, as far as he knew, had ever tasted the liquid outside of the ceremony. Indeed, except for certain of the priests, nobody even knew how to make wine. He shook the priest awake, said, What's the matter, Father? Father Jules burst into tears. Ah, my boy, you have caught me in my sin. I am a drunkard. Everybody looked blank. What does that word drunkard mean? It means a man who's damned enough to fill his skin with alcohol, my boy. Fill it until he's no longer a man, but a beast. Alcohol? What is that? The stuff that's in the wine, my boy. You, you don't know what I'm talking about, because the knowledge was long ago forbidden except to us of the cloth. Cloth, he says. Bah! We go around like everybody, naked, except for these extradermal monstrosities which reveal rather than conceal, which not only serve us as clothing, but as mentors, parents, censors, interpreters, and, yes, even as priests. Where's a bottle that's not empty? I'm thirsty. Rastanak stuck to the subject. Why was the making of this alcohol forbidden? How should I know? said Father Jules. I'm, I'm old, but not so ancient that I came with the six flying stars. Where's that bottle?" Rastanak was not offended by his crossness. 
Priests were notorious for being the most ill-tempered, obstreperous, and unstable of men. They were not at all like the clerics of earth, whom everybody knew from legend had been sweet-tempered, meek, humble, and obedient to authority. But on Lebopfe these men of the church had reason to be out of sorts. Everybody attended mass, paid their tithes, went to confession, and did not fall asleep during sermons. Everybody believed what the priests told them, and were as good as it was possible for human beings to be. So the priests had no real incentive to work, no evil to fight. Then why the prohibition against alcohol? Sacre bleu, groaned Father Jules. Drink as much as I did last night and you'll find out. Never again, I say. Ah, there's another bottle, hidden by a providential fate under my traveling robe. Where's that corkscrew? Father Jules swallowed half of the bottle, smacked his lips, picked up his skin from the floor, brushed off the dirt, and said, I must be going, my sons. I've a noon appointment with the bishop, and I've a good twelve kilometers to travel. Perhaps one of you gentlemen has a car? Rastanac shook his head and said he was sorry, but their car was tired and had besides thrown a shoe. Father Jules shrugged philosophically, put on his skin, and reached out again for the bottle. Rastanac said, Sorry, Father, I'm keeping this bottle. For what? asked Father Jules. Never mind. Say I'm keeping you from temptation. Bless you, my son, and may you have a big enough hangover to show you the wickedness of your ways. Smiling, Rastanac watched the father walk out. He was not disappointed. The priest had no sooner reached the huge door than his skin fell off and lay motionless upon the stone. Ah, breathed Rastanac. The same thing happened to Mavfabashine when he put his on. There must be something about the wine that deadens the skins, makes them fall off. After the padre had left, Rastanac handed the bottle to Mapfarity. We're dedicated to breaking the law most illegally, brother, so I'm asking you to analyze this wine and find out how to make it. Why not ask Father Jules? Because priests are pledged never to reveal the secret. That was one of the original agreements whereby the church was allowed to remain on Le Bopfe. Or at least that's what my parish priest told me. He said it was a good thing, as it removed an evil from man's temptation. He never did say why it was so evil. Maybe he didn't know. That doesn't matter. What does matter is that the Church has inadvertently given us a weapon whereby we may free man from his bondage to the skins, and it has also given itself once again a chance to be really persecuted and to flourish on the blood of its martyrs. Blood? said Lucienne, licking her lips. The churchmen drink blood? Rastanac did not explain. He could be wrong. If so, he'd feel less like a fool if they didn't know what he thought. Meanwhile, there were the first steps to be taken for the unskinning of an entire planet. Chapter 9 Later that day the mucketeers surrounded the castle, but they made no effort to storm it. The following day one of them knocked on the huge front door and presented Mapfarity with a summons requiring them to surrender. The giant laughed, put the document in his mouth, and ate it. The server fainted and had to be revived with a bucket of cold water before he could stagger back to report this tradition-shattering reception. Rastanac set up his underground so it could be expanded in a hurry. 
He didn't worry about the blockade, because, as was well known, Giant's castles had all sorts of subterranean tunnels and secret exits. He contacted a small number of priests who were willing to work for him. These were congenial rebels who became quite enthusiastic when he told them their activities would result in a fierce persecution of the Church. The majority, however, clung to their skins, and said they would have nothing to do with this extra-dermal-less devil. They took pride and comfort in that term. The vulgar phrase for the man who refused to wear his skin was devil, and by law and logic the Church could not be associated with a devil. As everybody knew, the priests have always been on the sides of the angels. Meanwhile, the devil's band slipped out of the tunnels and made raids. Their targets were giants' castles and government treasuries. Their loot, the geese. So many raids did they make that the president of the League of Giants and the business agent for the Guild of Egg-Stealers came to plead with them, and remained to denounce. Rastanak was delighted with their complaints, and, after listening for a while, threw them out. Rastanak had, like all other skin-wearers, always accepted the monetary system as a thing of reason and steady balance. But without his skin he was able to think objectively and saw its weaknesses. For some cause, buried far in history, the giants had always had control of the means for making the hexagonal golden coins called oofs. But the kings, wishing to get control of the golden eggs, had set up that elite branch of the guild which specialized in abducting the half-living geese. Whenever a thief was successful, he turned the goose over to the king. The monarch, in turn, sent a note to the robbed giant informing him that the government intended to keep the goose to make its own currency. But even though the giant was making counterfeit geese, the king, in his generosity, would ship to the giant one out of every thirty eggs laid by the kidnappee. The note was a polite and well-recognized lie. The giants made the only genuine gold-egg-laying geese on the planet because the Giants League alone knew the secret and the king gave back one-thirtieth of his loot so the giant could accumulate enough money to buy the materials to create another goose, which would possibly be stolen later on. Rastanak, by his illegal rape of geese, was making money scarce. Peasants were hanging on to their produce and waiting to sell until prices were at their highest. The government, merchants, the league, the guild, all saw themselves impoverished. Furthermore, the Amphibs, taking note of the situation, were making raids of their own and blaming them on Rastanak. He did not care. He was intent on trying to find a way to reach Catapromanoin and rescue the Earthman so he could take off in the spaceship floating in the harbor. But he knew he would have to take things slowly, to scout out the land and plan accordingly. Furthermore, Map Faraday had made him promise he would do his best to set up the landsmen so they would be able to resist the waterfolk when the day for war came. Rastanak made his biggest raid when he and his band stole one moonless night into the capital itself to rob the big goose house, only an egg's throw away from the palace and the ministry of ill will. They put the goose house guards to sleep with little arrows smeared with dream snake venom filled their lead-leaf-lined bags with gold eggs and sneaked out the back door. As they left, Rastanak saw a cloaked figure slinking from the back door of the ministry. Seized with intuition, he tackled the figure. It was an amphib changeling. Rastanak struck the amphib with a venomous arrow before the water-human could cry out or stab back. 
Mapfarity grabbed up the limp Amphib, and they raced for the safety of the castle. They questioned the Amphib, Pierre Pussypremnus, in the castle. At first, silent, he later began to talk freely when Mapfarity got a heavy skin from his flesh forge and put it on the fellow. It was a skin modeled after those worn by the water people, but it differed in that the giant could control through another skin the powerful neural shocks. After a few shocks, Pierre admitted he was the foster son of the amphibian king, and that, incidentally, Lucienne was his foster sister. He further stated he was a messenger between the amphib king and the Cesar's ill-will minister. More shocks extracted the fact that the minister of ill-will, Overpin, was an amphib changeling, who was passing himself off as a born landsman. Not only that, the human hostages among the amphibs were about to stage a carefully planned revolt against the born amphibs. It would kill off about half of them. The rest would then be brought under control of the master skin. When the two stepped from the lab, they were attacked by Lucienne, knife in hand. She gashed Rastanac in the arm before he knocked her out with an uppercut. Later, while Mapfarity applied a little jelly-like creature called a scar jester to the wound, Rastanac complained. I don't know if I can endure much more of this. I thought the way of violence would not be hard to follow because I hated the skins and the amphibs so much. But it is easier to attack a faceless hypothetical enemy or torture him than the individual enemy. Uh, much easier. My brother, boomed the giant, if you continue to dwell upon the philosophical implications of your actions, you will end up as helpless and confused as the leg-counting centipede. Better not think. Warriors are not supposed to think. They lose their keen fighting edge when they think. And you need all of that now. I would suppose that thought would sharpen them. When issues are simple, yes. But you must remember that the system on this planet is anything but uncomplicated. It was set up to confuse, to keep one always off balance. Just try to keep one thing in mind. The skins are far more of an impediment to man than they are a help. Also, that if the skins don't come off, the amphibs will soon be cutting our throats. The only way to save ourselves is to kill them first, right? I suppose so, said Rastanac. He stooped and put his hands under the unconscious Lucienne's armpits. Help me put her in a room. We'll keep her locked up until she cools off. Then we'll use her to guide us when we get to Catapromenoin. Which reminds me, how many gallons of the wine have you made so far? Chapter 10 A week later, Rastanac summoned Lucienne. She came in frowning and with her lower lip protruding in a pretty pout. He said, Day after tomorrow is the day on which the new kings are crowned, isn't it? Tonelessly, she said, supposedly. Actually, the present kings will be crowned again. Rastanac smiled. I know. Peculiar, isn't it, how the people always vote the same kings back into power? However, that isn't what I'm getting at. If I remember correctly, the amphibs give their king exotic and amusing gifts on coronation day. What do you think would happen if I took a big shipload of bottles of wine and passed it out among the population just before the amphibs begin their surprise massacre? Lucienne had seen Mapfarity and Rastanac experimenting with the wine, and she had been frightened by the results. Nevertheless, she made a brave attempt to hide her fear now. She spit at him and said, You 
mud-footed fool. There are priests who will know what it is. They will be in the coronation crowd. Ah, not so. In the first place, you amphibs are almost entirely aggressive pantheists. You have only a few priests, and you will now pay for that omission of wine-tasters. Second, Mapfarity's concoction tastes not at all vinous, and is twice as strong. She spat at him again, and spun on her heel, and walked out. That night Rastanac's band and Lucienne went through a tunnel which brought them up through a hollow tree about two miles west of the castle. There they hopped into the Renault, which had been kept in a camouflaged garage, and drove to the little port of Marek. Archambaud had paved their way here with golden eggs, and a sloop was waiting for them. Rastanac took the boat's wheel. Lucienne stood beside him, ready to answer the challenge of any amphib patrol that tried to stop them. As the amphib king's foster daughter, she could get the boat through to the amphib island without any trouble at all. Archambaud stood behind her, a knife under his cloak, to make sure she did not try to betray them. Lucienne had sworn she could be trusted. Rastanac had answered that he was sure she could be, too, as long as the knife-point pricked her in the back to remind her. Nobody stopped them. An hour before dawn they anchored in the harbor of Catapromenoin. Lucienne was tied hand and foot inside the cabin. Before Rastanac could scratch her with dream-snake venom, she pleaded, You could not do this to me, Jean-Jacques, if you loved me. Who said anything about loving you? Well, I like that. You said so, you cheat. Oh, then. Well, Lucienne, you've had enough experience to know that such protestations of tenderness and affection are only inevitable accompaniments of the moment's passion. For the first time he had known her, he saw Lucienne's lower lip tremble and tears come in her eyes. Do you mean you were only using me? she sobbed. You forget I had good reason to think you were just using me. Remember, you're an amphib, Lucienne. Your people can't be trusted. You blood-drinkers are as savage as the little sea-monsters you leave in human cradles. Jean-Jacques, take me with you. I'll do anything you say. I'll even cut my foster-father's throat for you. He laughed. Unheeding, she swept on. I want to be with you, Jean-Jacques. Look, with me to guide you in my homeland, with my prestige as the Amphib King's daughter, you can become king yourself after the rebellion. I'd get rid of the Amphib King for you, so there'll be nobody in your way." She felt no more guilt than a tigress. She was naive and terrible, innocent and disgusting. No thanks, Lucienne. He scratched her with a dream-snake needle. As her eyes closed, he said, You don't understand. All I want to do is voyage to the stars. Being king means nothing to me. The only person I'd trade places with would be the Earthman the Amphibs hold prisoner." He left her sleeping in the locked cabin. Noon found them loafing on the great square in front of the palace of the two kings of the sea and the islands. All were disguised as waterfolk. Before they'd left the castle they had grafted webs between their fingers and toes, just as Amphib changelings who weren't born with them did and they wore the special amphib skins that Mapfarity had grown in his flesh-forge. These were able to tune in on the amphibs' wavelengths, but they lacked their shock mechanism. Rastanac had to locate the Earthman, rescue him, and get him to the spaceship that lay anchored between two wharves, its sharp nose pointing outwards. 
A wooden bridge had been built from one of the wharfs to a place halfway up its towering side. Rastignac could not make out any breaks in the smooth metal that would indicate a port, but reason told him there must be some sort of entrance to the ship at that point. A guard of twenty amphibs repulsed any attempt on the crowd's part to get on the bridge. Rastignac had contacted the harbormaster and made arrangements for workmen to unload his cargo of wine. His free-handedness with the gold eggs got him immediate service even on this general holiday. Once in the square, he and his men uncrated the wine, but left the two heavy chests on the wagon, which was hitched to a powerful little six-legged jeep. They stacked the bottles of wine in a huge pile while the curious crowd in the square encircled them to watch. Rastignac then stood on a chest to survey the scene, so that he might best judge the time to start. There were perhaps seven or eight thousand of all three races there the Sassassorors, the Amphibs, the Humans, with an unequal portioning of each. Rastignac, looking for just such a thing, noticed that every non-human Amphib had at least two humans tagging at his heels. It would take two humans to handle an Amphib or Sassassoror. The Amphibs stood upon their seal-like hind flippers, at least six and a half feet tall, and weighed about three hundred pounds. The giant Sassassorors, being fish-eaters, had reached the same enormous height as Mapfarity. The giants were in the minority, as the Amphibs had always preferred stealing human babies from the Terrans. These were marked for death as much as the Amphibs. Rastignac watched for signs of uneasiness or hostility between the three groups. Soon he saw the signs. They were not plentiful, but they were enough to indicate an uneasy undercurrent. Three times the guards had to intervene to break up quarrels. The humans eyed the non-human quarrelers, but made no move to help their amphib fellows against the giants. Not only that, they took them aside afterwards and seemed to be reprimanding them. Evidently the order was that everyone was to be on his behavior until the time of revolt. Rastignac glanced at the great tower clock. It's an hour before the ceremonies begin, he said to his men. Let's go. Chapter 11 Mapfarity, who had been loitering in the crowd some distance away, caught Archibald's signal and slowly, as befit a giant whose feet hurt, limped towards them. He stopped, scrutinized the pile of bottles, then in his lion's roar at the bottom of a well voice said, Say, what's in these bottles? Rastignac shouted back, A drink which the new kings will enjoy very much. What's that? replied Mapfarity. Seawater? The crowd laughed. No, it's not water, Rastignac said. As anybody but a lumbering giant should know, it is a delicious drink that brings a rare ecstasy upon the drinker. I got the formula for it from an old witch who lives on the shores of far-off Abfela Vida Nayu. He told me it had been in his family since the coming of man to Lebopfe. He parted with the formula on condition I make it only for the kings. Will only their majesties get to taste this exquisite drink? bellowed Mapfarity. That depends upon whether it pleases their majesties to give some to their subjects to celebrate the results of the elections. Archambaud, also planted in the crowd, shrilled, I suppose if they do, the big paunched amphibs and giants will get twice as much as us humans. They always do, it seems. There was a mutter from the crowd, approbation from the amphibs, protest from the others. That will make no difference, 
said Rastanac, smiling. The fascinating thing about this is that an amphib can drink no more than a human. That may be why the old man who revealed his secret to me called the drink Old Equalizer. Ah, you're skinless, scoffed Map Faraday, throwing the most deadly insult known. I can out-drink, out-eat, and out-swim any human here. Here, Amphib, give me a bottle, and we'll see if I'm bragging. An Amphib captain pushed himself through the throng, waddling clumsily on his flippers like an upright seal. No, you don't, he barked. Those bottles are intended for the kings. No commoner touches them, least of all a human and a giant. Rastanac mentally hugged himself. He couldn't have planned a better intervention himself. Why can't I? he replied. Until I make an official presentation, these bottles are mine, not the king's. I'll do what I want with them. Yeah, said the Amphibs. That's telling him. The Amphibs' big brown eyes narrowed and his animal-like face wrinkled, but he couldn't think of a retort. Rastanac at once handed a bottle apiece to each of his comrades. They uncorked and drank, and then assumed an ecstatic expression, which was a tribute to their acting, for these three bottles held only fruit juice. "'Look here, Captain,' said Rastanac. "'Why don't you try a swig yourself? Go ahead, there's plenty. And I'm sure their majesties would be pleased to contribute some of it on this joyous occasion. Besides, I can always make more for the kings. As a matter of fact,' he added, winking, I expect to get a pension from the courts as the king's old equalizer-maker." The crowd laughed. The amphib, afraid of losing face, took the bottle, which contained wine rather than fruit juice. After a few long swallows, the amphib's eyes became red and a silly grin curved his thin, black-edged lips. Finally, in a thickening voice, he asked for another bottle. Rastanac, in a sudden burst of generosity, not only gave him one, but began passing out bottles to the many eager, reaching hands. Mapfarity and the two egg-thieves helped him. In a short time the pile of bottles had dwindled to a fourth of its former height. When a mixed group of guards strode up and demanded to know what the commotion was about, Rastanac gave them some bottles. Meanwhile Archambaud slipped off into the mob. He lurched into an amphib said something nasty about his ancestors and pulled his knife. When the Amphib lunged for the little man, Archambaud jumped back and shoved a human Amphib into the giant flipper-like arms. Within a minute the square had erupted into a fighting mob. Staggering, red-eyed, slur-tongued, their long-repressed hostility against each other released by the liquor which their bodies were unaccustomed to, human, Sassassaror, and Amphib fell to with the utmost will, slashing, slugging fighting with everything they had. None of them noticed that everyone who had drunk from the bottles had lost his skin. The skins had fallen off one by one and lay motionless on the pavement where they were kicked or stepped upon. Not one skin tried to crawl back to its owner because they were all nerve-numbed by the wine. Rastanac, seated behind the wheel of the jeep, began driving as best he could through the battling mob. After frequent stops he halted before the broad marble steps that ran like a stairway to heaven up and up before it ended on the porpoise porch of the palace. He and his gang were about to take the two heavy chests off the wagon when they were transfixed by a scene before them. A score of dead humans and amphibs lay on the steps, evidence of the fierce struggle that had taken place between the guards of the two monarchs. Evidently the king had heard of the riot and hastened outside. 
There the Amphib Changeling King had apparently realized that the rebellion was way ahead of schedule, but he had attacked the Amphib King anyway. And he had won, for his guardsmen held the struggling flipper-footed Amphib ruler down while two others bent his head back over a step. The Changeling King himself, still clad in the coronation robes, was about to draw his long ceremonial knife across the exposed and palpitating throat of the Amphib King. This in itself was enough to freeze the onlookers, but the sight of Lucienne running up the stairway toward the rulers added to their paralysis. She had a knife in her hand and was holding it high as she ran toward her foster father, the Amphib King. Mapfarity groaned, but Rastanac said, It doesn't matter that she has escaped. We'll go ahead with our original plan. They began unloading the chests while Rastanac kept an eye on Lucienne. He saw her run up, stop say a few words to the Amphib King, then kneel and stab him, burying the knife in his jugular vein. Then before anybody could stop her, she had applied her mouth to the cut in his neck. The Human King kicked her in the ribs and sent her rolling down the steps. Rastanac saw correctly that it was not her murderous deed that caused his reaction. It was because she had dared to commit it without his permission, and had also drunk the royal blood first. He further noted with grim satisfaction that when Lucienne recovered from the blow and ran back up to talk to the king, he ignored her. She pointed at the group around the wagon, but he dismissed her with a wave of his hand. He was too busy gloating over his vanquished rival lying at his feet. The plotters hoisted the two chests and staggered up the steps. The king passed them as he went down with no more than a curious glance. Gifts had been coming up those steps all day for the king, so he undoubtedly thought of them only as more gifts. So Rastanac and his men walked past the knives of the guards as if they had nothing to fear. Lucienne stood alone at the top of the steps. She was in a half-crouch, knife ready. I'll kill the king and I'll drink from his throat, she cried hoarsely. No man kicks me except for love. Has he forgotten that I am the foster daughter of the Amphib King? Rastanac felt revulsion, but he had learned by now that those who deal in violence and rebellion must march with strange steppers. "'Bear a hand here,' he said, ignoring her threat. Meekly she grabbed hold of a chest's corner. To his further questioning she replied that the earthman who had landed in the ship was held in a suite of rooms in the west wing. Their trip thereafter was fast and direct. Unopposed they carted the chests to the huge room where the master's skin was kept. There they found ten frantic biotechnicians excitedly trying to determine why the great extraderm, the master skin through which all individual skins were controlled, was not broadcasting properly. They had no way as yet of knowing that it was operating perfectly, but that the little skins upon the amphibs and their hostage humans were not shocking them into submission, because they were lying in a wine stupor on the ground. No one had told them that the skins, which fed off the bloodstream of their hosts, had become anesthetized from the alcohol and failed any longer to react to their master's skin. That, of course, applied only to those skins in the square that were drunk from the wine. Elsewhere, all over the kingdom, amphibs writhed in agony, and Sassassarors and Terrans were taking advantage of their helplessness to cut their throats. But not here, where the crux of the matter was. Chapter 12 The landsmen rushed the techs and pushed them into the great chemical vat in which the twenty-five hundred-foot square master's skin floated. 
Then they uncrated the lead-leaf-lined bags filled with stolen geese and emptied them into the nutrient fluid. According to Mapfarity's calculations, the radioactivity from the silicon-carbon geese should kill the big skin within a few days. When the new one was grown, that too would die, unless the amphib guessed what was wrong and located the geese on the bottom of the ten-foot-deep tank, they would not be able to stop the process. That did not seem likely. In either case, it was necessary that the master skin be put out of temporary commission, at least so the amphibs over the kingdom could have a fighting chance. Mapfarity plunged a hollow harpoon into the isle of floating protoplasm, and through a tube connected to that poured into the skin three gallons of the dream-snake venom. That was enough to knock it out for an hour or two. Meanwhile, if the amphibs had any sense at all, they'd have rid themselves of their extraderms. They left the lab and entered the west wing. As they trotted up the long winding corridors, Lucienne said, Jean-Jacques, what do you plan on doing now? Will you try to make yourself king of the Terrans and fight us amphibs? When he said nothing, she went on. Why don't you kill the amphib changeling king and take over here? I could help you do that. You could then have all of the Bob Fay in your power. He shot her a look of contempt and cried, Lucienne, can't you get it through that thick little head of yours that everything I've done has been done so that I can win one goal, reaching the flying stars? If I can get the Earthman to his ship, I'll leave with him and not set foot again for years on this planet, maybe never again." She looked stricken. But what about the war here? she asked. There are a few good men among the landfolk who are capable of leading in wartime. It will take strong men, and there are very few like me, I admit, but, uh-oh, the opposition. He broke off at sight of the six guards who stood before the Earthman's suite. Lucienne helped, and within a minute they had slain three and chased away the others. Then they burst through the door, and Rastanac received another shock. The occupant of the apartment was a tiny and exquisitely formed redhead with large blue eyes and very unmasculine curves. "'I thought you said Earthman,' protested Rastanac to the giant who came lumbering along behind them. Oh, I, I use that in the generic sense, Mapfarity replied. You didn't expect me to pay attention to sex, did you? I'm, I'm not interested in the gender of you humans, you know. There was no time for reproach. Rastanac tried to explain to the Earthwoman who he was, but she did not understand him. However, she did seem to catch on to what he wanted and seemed reassured by his gestures. She picked up a large book from a table and, hugging it to her small, high and rounded bosom, went with him out the door. They raced from the palace and descended onto the square. Here they found the surviving amphibs clustered into a solid phalanx and fighting bloody step by step toward the street that led to the harbor. Rastanac's little group skirted the battle and started down the steep avenue toward the harbor. Halfway down he glanced back and saw that nobody as yet was paying any attention to them. Nor was there anybody on the street to bother them, though the pavement was strewn with skins and bodies. Apparently those who'd lived through the first savage melee had gone to the square. They ran onto the wharf. The Earthwoman motioned to Rastanac that she knew how to open the spaceship, but the Amphibs didn't. Moreover, if they did get in, they wouldn't know how to operate it. She had the directions for doing so in the book hugged so desperately to her chest. 
Rastanac surmised she hadn't told the Amphibs about that. Apparently they hadn't as yet tried to torture the information from her. Therefore her telling him about the book indicated she trusted him. Lucienne said, Now what, Jean-Jacques? Are you still going to abandon this planet? Of course, he snapped. Will you take me with you? He had spent most of his life under the tutelage of his skin, which ensured that others would know when he was lying. It did not come easy to hide his true feelings, so a habit of a lifetime won out. I will not take you, he said. In the first place, though you may have some admirable virtues, I've failed to detect one. In the second place, I could not stand your blood-drinking nor your murderous and totally immoral ways. But, Jean-Jacques, I will give them up for you. Can the shark stop eating fish? You would leave Lucienne, who loves you as no Earthwoman could, and go with that, that pale little doll? I could break with my hands. Be quiet, he said. I have dreamed of this moment all my life. Nothing can stop me now. They were on the wharf beside the bridge that ran up the smooth side of the starship. The guard was no longer there, though bodies showed that there had been reluctance on the part of some to leave. They let the Earthwoman precede them up the bridge. Lucienne suddenly ran ahead of him, crying, If you won't have me, you won't have her either, nor the stars. Her knife sank twice into the Earthwoman's back. Then before anybody could reach her, she had leaped off the bridge and into the harbor. Rastanac knelt beside the Earthwoman. She held out the book to him. Then she died. He caught the volume before it struck the wharf. My God, my God! moaned Rastanac, stunned with grief and shock and sorrow. Sorrow for the woman and shock at the loss of the ship and the end of his plans for freedom. Mapfarity ran up then and took the book from his nerveless hand. She indicated that this is a manual for running the ship, he said. All is not lost. It'll be in a language we don't know, Rastanac whispered. Archambod came running up, shrilled, The Amphibs have broken through and are coming down the street. Let's get to our boat before the whole bloodthirsty mob gets here. Mapfarity paid him no attention. He thumbed through the book, then reached down and lifted Rastanac from his crouching position by the corpse. There's hope yet, Jean-Jacques, he growled. This book is printed with the same characters as those I saw in a book owned by a priest I knew. He said it was in Hebrew, and that it was the holy book in the original Earth language. This woman must be a citizen of the Republic of Israel, which I understand was rising to be a great power on Earth at the time you French left. Perhaps the language of this woman has changed somewhat from the original tongue, but I don't think the alphabet has. I'll bet that if we get this to a priest who can read it, there are only a few left, he can translate it well enough for us to figure out everything. They walked to the wharf's end and climbed down a ladder to a platform where a dory was tied up. As they rowed out to their sloop, Mapfarity said, Look, Rastanac, things aren't as bad as they seem. If you haven't the ship, nobody else has either. And you alone have the key to its entrance and operation. For that you can thank the Church, which has preserved the ancient wisdom for emergencies which it couldn't foresee such as this, just as it kept the secret of wine, which will eventually be the greatest means for delivering our people from their bondage to the skins and thus enabling them to fight the amphibs back instead of being slaughtered. Meanwhile we've a battle to wage. 
You will have to lead it. Nobody else but the skinless devil has the prestige to make the people gather around him. Once we accuse the Minister of Ill-Will of treason and jail him without an official breaker to release him, we'll demand a general election. You'll be made King of the Sassaror, I of the Terrans. That is inevitable, for we are the only skinless men and therefore irresistible. After the war is won, we'll leave for the stars. How do you like that?" Rastanak smiled. It was weak, but it was a smile. His bracket-shaped eyebrows bent into their old sign of determination. "'You are right,' he replied. "'I have given it much thought. A man has no right to leave his native land until he's settled his problems here. Even if Lucienne hadn't killed the Earthwoman and I had sailed away, my conscience wouldn't have given me any rest. I would have known I had abandoned the fight in the middle of it. But now that I have stripped myself of my skin, which was a substitute for my conscience, and now that I am being forced to develop my own inward conscience, I must admit that immediate flight to the stars would have been the wrong thing." The pleased and happy Mapfarity said, "'And you must also admit, Rastanak, that things so far have had a way of working out for the best. Even Lucienne, evil as she was, has helped towards the general good by keeping you on this planet. And the Church, though it has released once again the old evil of alcohol, has done more good by so doing than—' But here Rastanak interrupted to say he did not believe in this particular school of thought. And so, while the howls of savage warriors drifted from the wharves, while the structure of their world crashed around them, they plunged into that most violent and circular of all whirlpools, the discussion philosophical. End of Part 2 End of Rastanak the Devil by Philip Jose Farmer